0: section seven of the magic skin by honore balzac translated by ellen marriage this librivox recording is in the public domain section seven rastignac's eloquence carried me away the attractions of the plan shone too temptingly hopes were kindled the poetical aspects of the matter appealed to a poet how about money i said haven't you four hundred and fifty francs yes but debts to my landlady and the tailor you would pay your tailor you will never be anything whatever not so much as a minister but what can one do with twenty louis go to the gaming-table i shuddered you are going to launch out into what i call systematic dissipation said he noticing my scruples and yet you are afraid of a green tablecloth "'Listen to me,' I answered. "'I promised my father never to set foot in a gaming-house. "'Not only is that a sacred promise, "'but I still feel an unconquerable disgust "'whenever I pass a gaming-hell. "'Take the money and go without me. "'While our fortune is at stake, "'I will set my own affairs straight, "'and then I will go to your lodgings and wait for you.' "'That was the way I went to perdition.' a young man has only to come across a woman who will not love him or a woman who loves him too well and his whole life becomes a chaos prosperity swallows up our energy just as adversity obscures our virtues back once more in my hotel de saint-quentin i gazed about me a long while in the garret where i had led my scholar's temperate life a life which would perhaps have been a long and honorable one and that i ought not to have quitted for the fevered existence which had urged me to the brink of a precipice pauline surprised me in this dejected attitude why what is the matter with you she asked i rose and quietly counted out the money owing to her mother and added to it sufficient to pay for six months rent in advance she watched me in some alarm i am going to leave you dear pauline i knew it she exclaimed listen my child i have not given up the idea of coming back keep my room for me for six months if i do not return by the fifteenth of november you will come into possession of my things this sealed packet of manuscript is the fair copy of my great work on the will i went on pointing to a package will you deposit it in the king's library and you may do as you wish with everything that is left here. Her look weighed heavily on my heart. Pauline was an embodiment of conscience there before me. I shall have no more lessons, she said, pointing to the piano. I did not answer that. Will you write to me? Good-bye, Pauline. I gently drew her towards me and set a kiss on that innocent fair brow of hers, like snow that has not yet touched the earth a father's or a brother's kiss she fled i would not see madame Gaudin, hung my keys in its wonted place and departed i was almost at the end of the rue de cluny when i heard a woman's light footstep behind me i have embroidered this purse for you pauline said will you refuse even that by the light of the street lamp i thought i saw tears in pauline's face and i groaned moved perhaps by a common impulse we parted in haste like people who fear the contagion of the plague as i waited with dignified calmness for rastignac's return his room seemed a grotesque interpretation of the sort of life i was about to enter upon the clock on the chimney-piece was surmounted by a venus resting on her tortoise a half-smoked cigar lay in her arms costly furniture of various kinds love tokens very likely was scattered about old shoes lay on a luxurious sofa the comfortable armchair into which i had thrown myself bore as many scars as a veteran the arms were gnashed the back was overlaid with a thick stale deposit of pomade and hair oil from the heads of all his visitors splendor and squalor were oddly mingled on the walls the bed and everywhere you might have thought of a neapolitan palace and the groups of lazaroni about it it was the room of a gambler or a mauvais sujet where the luxury exists for one individual who leads the life of the senses and does not trouble himself over inconsistencies There was a certain imaginative element about the picture it presented. Life was suddenly revealed there in its rags and spangles, as the incomplete thing it really is, of course, but so vividly and picturesquely. It was like a den, where a brigand has heaped up all the plunder in which he delights. Some pages were missing from a copy of Byron's poems. They had gone to light a fire of a few sticks for this young person, who played for stakes of a thousand francs, and had not a faggot. He kept a Tilbury, and had not a whole shirt to his back. Any day a countess or an actress, or a run of luck at a cart, might set him up with an outfit worthy of a king. A candle had been stuck into the green bronze sheath of a vesta holder. A woman's portrait lay yonder, torn out of its carved gold setting. How was it possible that a young man, whose nature craved excitement, could renounce a life so attractive by reason of its contradictions, a life that afforded all the delights of war in the midst of peace? I was growing drowsy when Rastignac kicked the door open and shouted, "'Victory, we can take our time about dying!' he held out his hat filled with gold to me and put it down on the table then we pranced round it like a pair of cannibals about to eat a victim we stamped and danced and yelled and sang we gave each other blows fit to kill an elephant at sight of all the pleasures of the world contained in that hat twenty seven thousand francs said rastignac adding a few bank-notes to the pile of gold that would be enough for other folk to live upon will it be sufficient for us to die on yes we will breathe our last in a bath of gold hurrah and we capered afresh we divided the windfall we began with double napoleons and came down to the smaller coins one by one this for you this for me we kept saying distilling our joy drop by drop we won't go to sleep said rastignac joseph some punch he threw gold to his faithful attendant there is your share he said go and bury yourself if you can next day i went to lesage and chose my furniture took the rooms that you know in the rue taitbout and left the decoration to one of the best upholsterers i bought horses i plunged into a vortex of pleasures at once hollow and real and went in for play gaining and losing enormous sums but only at friends houses and in ballrooms never in gaming houses for which i still retained the holy horror of my early days without meaning it i made some friends either through quarrels or owing to the easy confidence established among those who are going to the bad together nothing possibly makes us cling to one another so tightly as our evil propensities i made several ventures in literature which were flatteringly received great men who followed the profession of letters having nothing to fear for me belauded me not so much on account of my merits as to cast a slur on those of their rivals. I became a free-liver, to make use of the picturesque expression appropriated by the language of excess, and made it a point of honor not to be long about dying, and that my zeal and prowess should eclipse those displayed by all others in the jolliest company. I was always spruce and carefully dressed i had some reputation for cleverness there was no sign about me of the fearful way of living which makes a man into a mere disgusting apparatus a funnel a pampered beast very soon debauch rose before me in all the majesty of its horror and i grasped all that it meant those prudent steady-going characters who are laying down wine in bottles for their heirs can barely conceive it is true of so wide a theory of life nor appreciate its normal condition but when will you instill poetry into the provincial intellect opium and tea with all their delights are merely drugs to folks of that calibre is not the imperfect sybarite to be met with even in paris itself that intellectual metropolis unfit to endure the fatigues of pleasure this sort of person after a drinking bout is very much like those worthy bourgeois who fall foul of music after hearing a new opera by rossini does he not renounce these courses in the same frame of mind that leads an abstemious man to forswear rufac pates because the first one forsooth gave him indigestion debauch is as surely an art as poetry and is not for craven spirits to penetrate its mysteries and appreciate its charms conscientious application is required and as with every path of knowledge the way is thorny and forbidding at the outset the great pleasures of humanity are hedged about with formidable obstacles not at single enjoyments but enjoyment as a system a system which establishes seldom experienced sensations and makes them habitual which concentrates and multiplies them for us creating a dramatic life within our life and imperatively demanding a prompt an enormous expenditure of vitality. War, power, art, like debauch, are all forms of demoralization, equally remote from the faculties of humanity, equally profound, and all are alike difficult of access. But when man has once stormed the heights of these grand mysteries, does he not walk in another world? Are not generals, ministers, and artists carried more or less towards destruction by the need of violent distractions in an existence so remote from ordinary life as theirs war, after all is the excess of bloodshed as the excess of self-interest produces politics excesses of every sort are brothers these social enormities possess the attraction of the abyss they draw towards themselves as saint helena beckoned napoleon we are fascinated our heads swim we wish to sound their depths though we cannot account for the wish perhaps the thought of infinity dwells in these precipices perhaps they contain some colossal flattery for the soul of man for is he not then wholly absorbed in himself the wearied artist needs a complete contrast to his paradise of imaginings and of studious hours he either craves, like God, the seventh day of rest, or with Satan the pleasures of hell, so that his senses may have free play in opposition to the employment of his faculties. Byron could never have taken for his relaxation to the independent gentleman's delight of Boston and gossip, for he the poet, and so must, needs pit Greece against Mahmoud in war is not man an angel of extirpation a sort of executioner on a gigantic scale must not the spell be strong indeed that makes us undergo such horrid sufferings so hostile to our weak frames sufferings that encircle every strong passion with a hedge of thorns the tobacco-smoker is seized with convulsions and goes through a kind of agony consequent upon his excesses but has he not borne a part in delightful festivals in realms unknown has europe ever ceased from wars she has never given herself time to wipe the stains from her feet that are steeped in blood to the ankle mankind at large is carried away by fits of intoxication as nature has its accessions of love for men in private life for a vegetating mirabeau dreaming of storms in a time of calm excess comprises all things it perpetually embraces the whole sum of life it is something better still it is a duel with an antagonist of unknown power a monster terrible at first sight that must be seized by the horns a labor that cannot be imagined. Suppose that nature has endowed you with a feeble stomach, or one of limited capacity. You acquire a mastery over it and improve it. You learn to carry your liquor. You grow accustomed to being drunk. You pass whole nights without sleep. At last you acquire the constitution of a colonel of cuirassiers, and in this way you create yourself afresh as if to fly in the face of providence a man transformed after this sword is like a neophyte who has at last become a veteran has accustomed his mind to shot and shell and his legs to lengthy marches when the monster's hold on him is still uncertain and it is not yet known which will have the better of it they roll over and over alternately victor and vanquished in a world where everything is wonderful where every ache of the soul is laid to sleep where only the shadows of ideas are revived this furious struggle has already become a necessity for us the prodigal has struck a bargain for all the enjoyments with which life teems abundantly at the price of his own death like the mythical person in legends who sold themselves to the devil for the power of doing evil for them instead of flowing quietly on in its monotonous course in the depths of some counting-house or study life is poured out in a boiling torrent excess is in short for the body what the mystic's ecstasy is for the soul intoxication steeps you in fantastic imaginings every whit as strange as those of ecstatics you know hours as full of rapture as a young girl's dreams you travel without fatigue you chat pleasantly with your friends words come to you with a whole life in each and fresh pleasures without regrets poems are set forth for you in a few brief phrases the coarse animal satisfaction in which science has tried to find a soul is followed by the enchanted drowsiness that men sigh for under the burden of consciousness. Is it not because they all feel the need of absolute repose, because excess is a sort of toll that genius pays to pain? Look at all great men. Nature made them pleasure-loving or base every one. Some mocking or jealous power corrupted them in either soul or body, so as to make all their powers futile, and their efforts of no avail. All men and all things appear before you, in the guise you choose, in those hours when wine has sway. You are Lord of all creation, you transform it at your pleasure, and throughout this unceasing delirium play may pour at your will, its molten lead into your veins. Some day you will fall into the monster's power. Then you will have, as I had, a frenzied awakening, with impotence sitting by your pillow. Are you an old soldier? Thysus attacks you. A diplomatist. An aneurysm hangs death in your heart by a thread. It will perhaps be consumption that will cry out to you, Let us be going as to raphael of urbino in old time killed by an excess of love in this way i have existed i have launched into the world too early or too late my energy would have been dangerous there no doubt if i had not have squandered it in such ways as these was not the world rid of an alexander by the cup of hercules at the close of a drinking bout there are some the sport of destiny, who must either have heaven or hell, the hospice of St. Bernard, or riotous excess. Only just now I lacked the heart to moralize about these two, and he pointed to Euphrasia and Aquilina. They are types of my own personal history, images of my life. I could scarcely reproach them. They stood before me like judges. In the midst of this drama that I was enacting, and while my distracting disorder was at its height two crises supervened each brought me keen and abundant pangs the first came a few days after i had flung myself like serendopolis on my pyre i met feodora under the peristyle of the Buffon. we both were waiting for our carriages ah so you are living yet that was the meaning of her smile and probably of the spiteful words she murmured in the ear of her chichispio, telling him my history, no doubt, rating mine as a common love affair. She was deceived, yet she was applauding her perspicacity. Oh, that I should be dying for her, must still adore her, always see her through my potations, see her still when I was overcome with wine, or in the arms of courtesans and know that i was a target for her scornful jests oh that i should be able to tear the love of her out of my breast and to fling it at her feet well i quickly exhausted my funds but owing to those three years of discipline i enjoyed the most robust health and on the day that i found myself without a penny i felt remarkably well in order to carry on the process of dying i signed bills at short dates and the day came when they must be met painful excitements but how they quickened the pulses of youth i was not prematurely aged i was young yet and full of vigour and life at my first debt all my virtues came to light slowly and despairingly they seemed to pace towards me but i could compound with them they were like aged ants that begin with a scolding and end by bestowing tears and money upon you imagination was less yielding i saw my name banded about through every city in paris one's name is oneself said josebe salverte after these excursions and return to the room i had never quitted like a doppelganger in a german tale and came to myself with a start i used to see with indifference a banker's messenger going on his errands through the streets of paris like a commercial nemesis wearing his master's livery a gray coat and a silver badge but now i hated the species in advance One of them came one morning to ask me to meet some eleven bills that I had scrawled my name upon. My signature was worth three thousand francs. Taking me altogether, I myself was not worth that amount. Sheriffs' deputies rose up before me, turning their callous faces upon my despair, as the hangman regards the criminal to whom he says, It has just struck half-past three. I was in the power of their clerks, they could scribble my name, drag it through the mire, and jeer at it. I was a defaulter. Had a debtor any right to himself, could not other men call me to account for my way of living? Why had I eaten puddings, a la Cipolata? Why had I iced my wine? Why had I slept, or walked, or thought, or amused myself, when I had not paid them? At any moment, in the middle of a poem, during some train of thought, while I was gaily breakfasting in the pleasant company of my friends, I might look to see a gentleman enter in a coat of chestnut brown, with a shabby hat in his head. This gentleman's appearance would signify my debt, the bill I had drawn. The spectre would compel me to leave the table to speak to him, blight my spirits, despoil me of my cheerfulness, of my mistress, of all I possessed down to my very bedstead remorse itself is more easily endured remorse does not drive us into the street nor into the prison of saint Pelagie. it does not force us into detestable sink of vice remorse only brings us to the scaffold where the executioner invests us with a certain dignity as we pay the extreme penalty everybody believes in our innocence but people will not credit a penniless prodigal with a single virtue my debts had other incarnations there is the kind that goes about on two feet in a green cloth hat and blue spectacles carrying umbrellas of various hues you come face to face with him at the corner of some street in the midst of your mirth these have the detestable prerogative of saying monsieur de Valentin owes me something and does not pay i have a hold on him he had better not show me any offensive airs you must bow to your creditors and moreover bow politely when are you going to pay me say they and you must lie and beg money of another man and cringe to a fool seated on his strong-box and receive sour looks in return from these hoarse leeches a blow would be less hateful you must put up with their crass ignorance and calculating morality a debt is a feat of the imaginative that they cannot appreciate a borrower is often carried away and overmastered by generous impulses nothing great Nothing magnanimous can move or dominate those who live for money, and recognize nothing but money. I myself held money in abhorrence, or a bill may undergo a final transformation into some meritorious old man with a family dependent upon him. My creditor might be a living picture for Gruz, a paralytic with his children round him, a soldier's widow holding out beseeching hands to me terrible creditors are these with whom we are forced to sympathize and when their claims are satisfied we owe them a further debt of assistance the night before the bills fell due i lay down with the false calm of those who sleep before their approaching execution or with a duel in prospect rocked as they are by delusive hopes But when i woke when i was cool and collected when i found myself imprisoned in a banker's portfolio and floundering in statements covered with red ink then my debts sprang up everywhere like grasshoppers before my eyes there were my debts my clock my armchairs my debts were inlaid in the very furniture which i liked best to use these gentle inanimate slaves were to fall prey to the harpies of the chatelet were to be carried off by the broker's men and brutally thrown on the market ah my property was a part of myself the sound of the door-bell rang through my heart while it seemed to strike at me where kings should be struck at in the head mine was a martyrdom without heaven for its reward for a magnanimous nature debt is a hell and a hell moreover with sheriff's officers and brokers in it an undisclosed debt is something mean and sordid it is a beginning of knavery it is something worse it is a lie it prepares the way for crime and brings together the planks for the scaffold my bills were protested three days afterwards i met them and this is how it happened a speculator came offering to buy the island in the loire belonging to me where my mother lay buried i closed with him when i went to his solicitor to sign the deeds i felt a craven-like chill in the dark office that made me shudder it was the same cold dampness that had laid hold upon me at the brink of my father's grave. I looked upon this as an evil omen. I seemed to see the shade of my mother, and to hear her voice. What power was it that made my own name ring vaguely in my ears, in spite of the clamor of bells? The money paid down for my island, when all my debts were discharged, left me in possession of two thousand francs. I could now have returned to the scholar's tranquil life, it is true. I could have gone back to my garret after having gained an experience of life with my head filled with the results of extensive observation, and with a certain sort of reputation attaching to me. But Theodora's hold upon her victim was not relaxed. We often met. I compelled her admirers to sound my name in her ears by dint of astonishing them with my cleverness and success with my horses and equipages it all found her impassive and uninterested so did an ugly phrase of rastignac's he is killing himself for you i charged the world at large with my revenge but i was not happy while i was fathoming the miry depths of life i only recognized the more keenly at all times the happiness of reciprocal affection it was a shadow that i followed through all that befell me in my extravagance and in my wildest moments it was my misfortune to be deceived in my fairest beliefs to be punished by ingratitude for benefiting others to receive uncounted pleasures as the reward of my errors a sinister doctrine but a true one for the prodigal the contagious leprosy of feodora's vanity had taken hold of me at last i probed my soul and found it cankered and rotten i bore the marks of the devil's claw upon my forehead it was impossible to me thenceforward to do without the incessant agitation of a life fraught with danger at every moment, or to dispense with execrable refinements of luxury. If I had possessed millions, I should still have gambled, reveled, and racketed about. I wished never to be alone with myself, and I must have false friends and courtesans, wine and good cheer to distract me the ties which attach a man to family life had been permanently broken for me. I had become a galley-slave of pleasure, and must accomplish my destiny of suicide. During the last days of my prosperity I spent every night in the most incredible excesses, but every morning death cast me back upon life again. I would have taken a conflagration with as little concern as a man with a life annuity. However— I at last found myself alone with a twenty-franc piece. I bethought me then of Rastignac's luck. Eh, Raphael exclaimed, interrupting himself, as he remembered the talisman, and drew it from his pocket. Perhaps he was wearied by the long day's strain, and had no more strength left wherewith to pilot his head through the seas of wine and punch or perhaps exasperated by this symbol of his own existence the torrent of his own eloquence gradually overwhelmed him raphael became excited and elated and like one completely deprived of reason the devil take death he shouted brandishing the skin i mean to live i am rich i have every virtue nothing will withstand me who would not be generous when everything is in his power aha aha i wished for two hundred thousand livres a year and i shall have them bow down before me all of you wallowing on the carpets like swine in the mire you all belong to me a precious property truly i am rich i could buy you all even the deputy snoring over there scum of society give me your benediction i am the pope raphael's vociferations had been hitherto drowned by a thorough bass of snores but now they became suddenly audible most of the sleepers started up with a cry saw the cause of the disturbance on his feet tottering uncertainly and cursed him in concert for a drunken brawler silence shouted raphael back to your kennels you dogs Emile, i have riches i will give you havana cigars I am listening, the poet replied. Death or Feodora. On with you. That silky Feodora deceived you. Women are all daughters of Eve. There is nothing dramatic about that rigmarole of yours. Ah, but you are sleeping, slyboots. No, death or Feodora. I have it. Wake up, Raphael shouted, beating Emile with the piece of chagrin as if he meant to draw electric fluid out of it tonnerre said emile springing up and flinging his arms round raphael my friend remember the sort of women you are with i am a millionaire if you are not a millionaire you are most certainly drunk drunk with power i can kill you silence i am nero i am nebuchadnezzar but raphael we are in queer company and you ought to keep quiet for the sake of your own dignity. My life has been silent too long. I mean to have my revenge now on the world at large. I will not amuse myself by squandering paltry five-franc pieces. I will reproduce and sum up my epoch by absorbing human lives, human minds, and human souls. There are the treasures of pestilence. That is no paltry kind of wealth, is it? I will wrestle with fevers yellow blue or green with whole armies with gibbets i can possess feodora yet no i do not want feodora she is a disease i am dying of feodora i want to forget feodora if you keep on calling out like this i shall take you into the dining room do you see this skin it is solomon's will solomon belongs to me a little varlet of a king, Arabia is mine, Arabia Petraea, to boot, and the universe and you too, if I choose, if I choose, ah be careful, I can buy up all your journalists' shop, and you shall be my valet, you shall be my valet, you shall manage my newspaper, valet, valet, that is to say, free from aches and pains, because he has no brains at the word emile carried raphael off into the dining-room all right he remarked yes my friend i am your valet but you are about to be editor-in-chief of a newspaper so be quiet and behave properly for my sake have you no regard for me regard for you you shall have a havana cigars with this bit of chagrin always with this skin this supreme bit of chagrin it is a cure for corns and efficacious remedy do you suffer i will remove them never have i known you so senseless senseless my friend not at all this skin contracts whenever i form a wish tis a paradox there is a brahman underneath it the brahman must be a droll fellow for our desires look you are bound to expand yes yes i tell you yes yes very true i am quite of your opinion our desires expand the skin i tell you yes you don't believe me i know you my friend you are full of lies as a new-made king how can you expect me to follow your drunken maunderings i will bet you i can prove it let us measure it goodness he will never get off to sleep exclaimed Emile, as he watched Raphael rummaging busily in the dining-room. Thanks to the peculiar clearness with which external objects are sometimes projected on an inebriated brain, in sharp contrast to its own obscure imaginings, Valentin found an inkstand and a table napkin, with the quickness of a monkey repeating all the time, Let us measure it, let us measure it. All right, said Emile, let us measure it. The two friends spread out the table napkin and laid the magic skin upon it. As Emile's hand appeared to be steadier than Raphael's, he drew a line with pen and ink around the talisman, while his friend said, I wished for an income of two hundred thousand livres, didn't I? Well, when that comes, you will observe a mighty diminution of my chagrin. Yes, now go to sleep shall i make you comfortable on that sofa now then are you all right yes my nursling of the press you shall amuse me you shall drive the flies away from me the friend of adversity should be the friend of prosperity so i will give you some havana sig come now sleep sleep off your gold you millionaire you sleep off your paragraphs good-night say good-night to nebuchadnezzar love wine france glory and Tres. very soon the snorings of the two friends were added to the music with which the rooms resounded an ineffectual concert the lights went out one by one their crystal scones crackling in the final flare night threw dark shadows over this prolonged revelry in which raphael's narrative had been a second orgy of speech of words without ideas of ideas for which words had often been lacking. Towards noon next day, the fair Aquilina bestirred herself. She yawned wearily. She had slept with her head upon a painted velvet footstool, and her cheeks were mottled over by contact with the surface. Her movement awoke Euphrasia, who suddenly sprang up with a hoarse cry. Her pretty face, that had been so fresh and fair in the evening, was sallow now and pallid she looked like a candidate for the hospital the rest awoke also by degrees with portentous groanings to feel themselves over in every stiffened limb and to experience the infinite varieties of weariness that weighed upon them a servant came in to throw back the shutters and open the windows there they all stood brought back to the consciousness by the warm rays of sunlight that shone upon the sleepers' heads. Their movements during slumber had disordered the elaborately arranged hair and toilettes of the women. They presented a ghastly spectacle in the bright daylight. Their hair fell ungracefully about them. Their eyes, lately so brilliant, were heavy and dim. The expression of their faces was entirely changed. The sickly hues which daylight brings out so strongly, were frightful. An olive tint had crept over the lymphatic faces, so fair and soft when in repose the dainty red lips were grown pale and dry, and bore tokens of the degradation of excess. Each disowned his mistress of the night before. The women looked wan and discolored, like flowers trampled underfoot by a passing procession the men who scorned them looked even more horrible those human faces would have made you shudder the hollow eyes with the dark circles round them seemed to see nothing they were dull with wine and stupefied with heavy slumbers that had been exhausting rather than refreshing there was an indescribable ferocious and stolid bestiality about these haggard faces where bare physical appetite appeared shorn of all the poetical illusion with which the intellect invests it even these fearless champions accustomed to measure themselves with excess were struck with horror at this awakening of vice stripped of its disguises at being confronted thus with sin the skeleton in rags lifeless and hollow bereft of the sophistries of the intellect and the enchantments of luxury. Artists and courtesans scrutinized in silence and with haggard glances the surrounding disorder, the rooms where everything had been laid waste at the havoc wrought by heated passions. Demoniac laughter broke out when Tally catching the smothered murmurs of his guests, tried to greet them with a grin. His darkly flushed, perspiring countenance loomed upon this pandemonium like the image of a crime that knows no remorse see la bouge rouge the picture was complete a picture of a foul life in the midst of luxury a hideous mixture of the pomp and squalor of humanity an awakening after the frenzy of debauch has crushed and squeezed all the fruits of life in her strong hands till nothing but unsightly refuse is left to her and lies in which she believes no longer you might have thought of death gloating over a family stricken with the plague the sweet scents and dazzling lights the mirth and excitement were all no more disgust with its nauseous sensations and searching philosophy was there instead the sun shone in like truth the pure outer air was like virtue in contrast with the heated atmosphere heavy with the fumes of the previous night of revelry accustomed as they were to their life many of the girls thought of other days and other wakings pure and innocent days when they looked out and saw the roses and honeysuckle about the casement and the fresh countryside without enraptured by the glad music of the skylark while earth lay in mists lighted by the dawn and in all the glittering radiance of dew others imagined the family breakfast the father and children round the table the innocent laughter the unspeakable charm that pervaded it all the simple hearts and their meal as simple an artist mused upon his quiet studio on his statue in its severe beauty and the graceful model who was waiting for him a young man recollected a lawsuit on which the fortunes of a family hung, and an important transaction that needed his presence. The scholar regretted his study, and the noble work that called for him. Emile appeared just then, as smiling, blooming, and fresh as the smartest assistant in a fashionable shop. You are all as ugly as bailiffs. You won't be fit for anything today, so this day is lost, and I vote for breakfast." at this telefe went out to give some orders the women went languidly up to the mirrors to set their toilettes in order each one shook herself the wilder sort lectured the steadier ones the courtesans made fun of those who looked unable to continue the boisterous festivity but these wan forms revived all at once stood in groups and talked and smiled some servants quickly and adroitly set the furniture and everything else in its place and a magnificent breakfast was got ready the guests hurried into the dining-room everything there bore indelible marks of yesterday's excess it is true but there were at any rate some traces of ordinary rational existence some traces as may be found in a sick man's dying struggles and so the revelry was laid away and buried like carnival of a shrove tuesday by masks wearied out with dancing drunk with drunkenness and quite ready to be persuaded of the pleasures of lassitude lest they should be forced to admit their exhaustion as soon as these bold spirits surrounded the capitalist's breakfast-table cardot appeared he had left the rest to make a night of it after the dinner and finished the evening after his own fashion in the retirement of domestic life just now a sweet smile wandered over his features he seemed to have a presentiment that there would be some inheritance to sample and divide, involving inventories and engrossing, an inheritance rich in fees and deeds to draw up, and something as juicy as the trembling fillet of beef in which their host had just plunged his knife. "'Ho, ho! We are to have breakfast in the presence of a notary,' cried Cursey. "'You have come here just at the right time.' said the banker, indicating the breakfast. You can jot down the numbers and initial off all the dishes. There is no will to make here but contracts of marriage. There may be, perhaps, said the scholar, who had made a satisfactory arrangement for the first time in twelve months. Ho, oh, oh, ho, ha, ha! One moment cried Cardo, fairly deafened by a chorus of wretched jokes. I came here on serious business. I am bringing six millions for one of you dead silence. Monsieur, he went on, turning to Raphael, who at the moment was unceremoniously wiping his eyes on the corner of the table napkin. Was not your mother a Mademoiselle O'Flaherty? Yes, said Raphael, mechanically enough, Barbara Marie. Have you your certificate of birth about you, Cardot went on, and Madame de Verlatins at well? I believe so very well then monsieur you are the sole heir of major o'flaherty who died in august eighteen twenty eight at calcutta an incalculable fortune said the critic the major having bequeathed several amounts to public institutions in his will the french government sent in a claim for the remainder to the east india company the notary continued the estate is clear and ready to be transferred at this moment i have been looking in vain for the airs and assigns of mademoiselle barbara marie o'flaherty for a fortnight past when yesterday at dinner just then raphael suddenly staggered to his feet he looked like a man who has just received a blow acclamation took the form of silence for stifled envy had been the first feeling in every breast and all eyes devoured him like flames then a murmur rose and grew like the voice of a discontented audience and the first mutterings of a riot as everybody made some comment on this news of great wealth brought by the notary this abrupt subservience of the fate brought raphael thoroughly to his senses he immediately spread out the table-napkin with which he had lately taken the measure of the piece of chagrin he heeded nothing as he laid the talisman upon it and shuddered involuntarily at the sight of a slight difference between the present size of the skin and the outline traced upon the linen why what is the matter with him talifei cried he comes by his fortune very cheaply soutien le chatillon said mix to emile the joy will kill him a ghastly white hue overspread every line of the wan features of the heir at law his face was drawn every outline grew haggard the hollows in his livid countenance grew deeper and his eyes were fixed and staring he was facing death the opulent banker surrounded by faded women and faces with satiety written on them The enjoyment that had reached the pitch of agony was a living illustration of his own life. Raphael looked thrice at the talisman, which lay passively within the merciless outlines on the table napkin. He tried not to believe it, but his incredulity vanished utterly before the light of an inner presentiment. The whole world was his, he could have all things, but the will to possess them was utterly extinct like a traveller in the midst of the desert, with but a little water left to quench his thirst. He must measure his life by the drafts he took of it. He saw what every desire of his must cost him in the days of his life. He believed in the power of the magic skin at last. He listened to every breath he drew. He felt ill already. He asked himself, "'Am I not consumptive?' did not my mother die of a lung complaint ah raphael what fun you will have what will you give me asked aquilina here's to the death of his uncle major o'flaherty there is a man for you he will be a peer of france pooh what is a peer of france since july said the amateur critic are you going to take a box at the bouffons you are going to treat us all i hope put in mix of you a man of his sort will be sure to do things in style,' said Emile. The hurrah set up by the jovial assembly rang in Valentin's ears, but he could not grasp the sense of a single word. Vague thoughts crossed him of the Breton peasant's life of mechanical labor, without a wish of any kind. He pictured him burdened with a family, tilling the soil, living on buckwheat meal, drinking cider out of a pitcher, believing in the Virgin and the King, taking the sacrament at Easter, dancing of a Sunday on the green sward, and understanding never a word of the rector's sermon. The actual scene that lay before him, the gilded furniture, the courtesans, the feast itself, and the surrounding splendors, seemed to catch him by the throat and made him cough. Do you wish for some asparagus? the banker cried i wish for nothing thundered raphael bravo talifei exclaimed you understand your position a fortune confers the privilege of being impertinent you are one of us gentlemen let us drink to the might of gold monsieur valentin here six times a millionaire has become a power he is a king like all the rich everything is at his disposal everything lies under his feet from this time forth the axiom that all Frenchmen are alike in the eyes of the law is for him a fib at the head of the constitutional charter. He is not going to obey the law, the law is going to obey him. There are neither scaffolds nor executioners for millionaires.' "'Yes, there are,' said Raphael. "'They are their own executioners.' "'Here is another victim of prejudices,' cried the banker. "'Let us drink,' Raphael said putting the talisman into his pocket what are you doing said emile checking his movement gentlemen he added addressing the company who were rather taken aback by raphael's behaviour you must know that our friend valentin here what am i saying i mean my lord marquis de valentin is in the possession of a secret for obtaining wealth his wishes are fulfilled as soon as he knows them he will make us all rich together, or he is a flunkey and devoid of all decent feeling. "'Oh, Raphael, dear, I should like a set of pearl ornaments,' Euphrasia exclaimed. "'If he has any gratitude in him, he will give me a couple of carriages with fast steppers,' said Aquilina. "'Wish for a hundred thousand a year for me. "'Indian shawls. "'Pay my debts. "'Send an apoplexy to my uncle, the old stick.' ten thousand a year in the funds and i'll cry quits of you raphael deeds of gift and no mistake was the notary's comment he ought at least to rid me of the gout lower the funds shouted the banker these phrases flew about like the last discharge of rockets at the end of a display of fireworks and were uttered perhaps more in earnest than in jest my good friend emile said solemnly i shall be quite satisfied with an income of two hundred thousand livres please do set about it at once do you not know the cost emile asked raphael a nice excuse the poet cried ought we not to sacrifice ourselves for our friends i have almost a mind to wish that you all were dead Valentin made answer with a dark inscrutable look at his boon companions dying people are frightfully cruel said emile laughing you are rich now he went on gravely very well i will give you two months at most before you grow vilely selfish you are so dense already that you cannot understand a joke you have only to go a little further to believe in your magic skin raphael kept silent fearing the banter of the company but he drank immoderately trying to drown in intoxication the recollection of his fatal power part three the agony in the early days of december an old man of some seventy years of age pursued his way along the rue de varennes in spite of the falling rain he peered up at the door of each house trying to discover the address of the marquis raphael de valentin in a simple childlike fashion and with the abstracted look peculiar to philosophers his face plainly showed traces of a struggle between a heavy mortification and an authoritative nature his long gray hair hung in disorder about a face like a piece of parchment shriveling in the fire if a painter had come upon this curious character he would no doubt have transferred him to his sketchbook on his return a thin bony figure clad in black and have inscribed beneath it classical poet in search of a rhyme when he had identified the number that had been given to him this reincarnation of roland knocked meekly at the door of a splendid mansion is monsieur raphael in the worthy man inquired of the swiss in livery my lord the marquis sees nobody said the servant swallowing a huge morsel that he had just dipped in a large bowl of coffee there is his carriage said the elderly stranger pointing to a fine equipage that stood under the wooden canopy that sheltered the steps before the house in place of a striped linen awning he is going out i will wait for him then you might wait here till to-morrow morning old boy said the swiss a carriage is always waiting for monsieur please to go away if i were to let any stranger come into the house without orders i should lose an income of six hundred francs a tall old man in a costume not unlike that of a subordinate in the civil service came out of the vestibule and hurried part of the way down the steps while he made a survey of the astonished elderly applicant for admission what is more here is monsieur jonathan the swiss remarked speak to him fellow feeling of some kind or curiosity brought the two old men together in a central space in the great entrance court a few blades of grass were growing in the crevices of the pavement a terrible silence reigned in that great house the sight of jonathan's face would have made you long to understand the mystery that brooded over it and that was announced by the smallest trifles about the melancholy place when raphael inherited his uncle's vast estate his first care had been to seek out the old and devoted servitor of whose affection he knew that he was secure jonathan had wept tears of joy at the sight of his young master of whom he had thought he had taken a final farewell and when the marquis exalted him to the high office of steward his happiness could not be surpassed so old jonathan became an intermediary power between raphael and the world at large he was the absolute disposer of his master's fortune the blind instrument of an unknown will and a sixth sense as it were by which the emotions of life were communicated to raphael i should like to speak to monsieur raphael sir said the elderly person to jonathan as he climbed up the steps some way into a shelter from the rain to speak with my lord the marquis the steward cried he scarcely speaks even to me his foster father but i am likewise his foster father said the old man if your wife was his foster mother i fed him myself with the milk of the muses he is my nursling my child carus alumnus i formed his mind cultivated his understanding developed his genius and i venture to say it to my own honour and glory is he not one of the most remarkable men of our epoch he was one of my pupils in the two lower forms and in rhetoric i am his professor ah sir then you are Monsieur Porquet, exactly sir but hush hush jonathan called to two underlings whose voices broke the monastic silence that shrouded the house but is the marquis ill sir the professor continued my dear sir jonathan replied heaven only knows what is the matter with my master you see there are not a couple of houses like ours anywhere in paris do you understand not two houses faith that there are not my lord the marquis had this hotel purchased for him it formerly belonged to a duke and a Peer of france then he spent three hundred thousand francs over furnishing it that's a good deal you know three hundred thousand francs but every room in the house is a perfect wonder good said i to myself when i saw this magnificence it is just like it used to be in the time of my lord his late grandfather and the young marquis is going to entertain all paris and the court nothing of the kind my lord refused to see any one whatever tis a funny life that he leads monsieur Porquet, you understand an inconciliable life he rises every day at the same time i am the only person you see that may enter his room i open all the shutters at seven o'clock summer or winter it is all arranged very oddly as i come in i say to him you must get up and dress my lord marquis then he rises and dresses himself i have to give him his dressing-gown and it is always after the same pattern and of the same material I am obliged to replace it when it can be used no longer, simply to save him the trouble of asking for a new one, a queer fancy. As a matter of fact, he has a thousand francs to spend every day, and he does as he pleases the dear child, and besides, I am so fond of him that if he gave me a box on the ear on one side, I should hold out the other to him the most difficult things he will tell me to do, and yet I do them, you know. He gives me a lot of trifles to attend to, that I am well set to work. He reads the newspapers, doesn't he? Well, my instructions are to put them always in the same place on the same table. I always go at the same hour and shave him myself, and don't I tremble. The cook would forfeit an annuity of a thousand crowns that he is to come into after my lord's death if breakfast is not served inconciliably at ten o'clock precisely the menus are drawn up for the whole year round day after day my lord the marquis has not a thing to wish for he has strawberries whenever there are any and he has the earliest mackerel to be had in paris The programme is printed every morning. He knows his dinner by rote. In the next place he dresses himself at the same hour, in the same clothes, the same linen, that I always put on the same chair. You understand? I have to see that he always has the same cloth, and if it should happen that his coat came to grief, a mere supposition, I should have to replace it by another without saying a word about it to him. If it is fine, I go in and say to my master, You ought to go out, sir. He says yes or no. If he has a notion that he will go out, he doesn't wait for his horses. They are always ready harnessed. The coachman stops there inconciliably, whip in hand, just as you see him out there. In the evening, after dinner, my master goes one day to the opera, the other to the no he hasn't yet gone to the italians though for i could not find a box for him until yesterday then he comes in at 11 o'clock precisely to go to bed at any time in the day when he has nothing to do he reads he is always reading you see it is a notion he has my instructions are to read the journal de la librairie before he sees it and to buy new books, so that he finds them on his chimney-piece on the very day that they are published. I have orders to go into his room every hour or so, to look after the fire and everything else, and to see that he wants nothing. He gave me a little book, sir, to learn off by heart, with all my duties written in it, a regular catechism. In summer I have to keep a cool and even temperature with blocks of ice." and at all seasons to put fresh flowers all about. He is rich, he has a thousand francs to spend every day, he can indulge his fancies, and he hadn't even necessaries for so long, poor child. He doesn't annoy anybody, he is as good as gold, he never opens his mouth, for instance. The house and garden are absolutely silent. In short, my master has not a single wish left everything comes in the twinkling of an eye if he raises his hand an instanter quite right too if servants are not looked after everything falls into confusion you would never believe the lengths he goes about things his rooms are all what do you call it er er and sweet. very well just suppose now that he opens his door or the door of his study presto All the other doors fly open of themselves by a patent contrivance, and then he can go from one end of the house to the other and not find a single door shut, which is all very nice and pleasant and convenient for us great folk. But, on my word, it cost us a lot of money, and after all, Monsieur Porriquet, he said to me at last, Jonathan, you will look after me as if I were a baby in long clothes." Yes, sir, long clothes. those were his very words. You will think of all my requirements for me. I am the master, so to speak, and he is the servant. You understand the reason of it? Ah, my word, that is just what nobody on earth knows but himself and God Almighty. It is quite inconciliable. End of section 7